And Lord Jesus, having done all of that for us, we know that we can trust you and we pray that you would use what you say to us in your word this morning to help us trust you more. We pray this in your name. Amen. I just want to say thank you to all of you, the, the music, the choir, the, the band. I think God gave us music because it has a great ability to move us into his presence, get us past our intellectual defenses, and go straight to the heart. And you did that this morning. You do it every week, but you really did it this morning. I want to say thank you so much. You guys are great. I want to conduct a little survey here, but you don't have to raise your hands because it could get embarrassing. So just make a mental note. Have you ever prayed for a parking spot when you've been in a hurry? Uh Uh-huh, I'll take that as a yes. Or have you prayed for nice weather, not for any major reason like preventing crop failures, but because you had an outdoor party? Or maybe you were on vacation and you wanted sun. I did that once. I'm, I'm from Seattle, right? It's understandable. Or has someone ever told you that they prayed for a parking spot and they got one? And then did you find yourself thinking, so let me get this straight. The crisis in the Middle East continues, but you got your parking spot, right? Did you ever think that, or, or is that just me? Does God care about the little things in our lives? And can we pray about the little things in our lives? Or do our prayers need to be about something more important? And if God does intervene in the little things, well, then why do big things like war and poverty and people with cancer seem to go unaddressed? For Lent, I'm going to be doing a sermon series called Dinners with Jesus. A lot of significant moments in Jesus' ministry happen around meals. And there's a good reason for that, because in Jesus' day, meals were very significant. To eat with someone was to show them the highest form of love and acceptance and friendship you could show. So when Jesus eats with prostitutes and thieves, he's making a bold statement that there is room at his table for sinners. Meals were also an occasion of great joy and and great celebration. And that's why I think it's significant that heaven is pictured as a wedding feast, sort of an eternal all-you-can-eat buffet, only you never gain weight. And as long as there's a lot of chocolate chip cookies there, I'm going to be very, very happy in heaven. And I think that's kind of cool, right, that Jesus doesn't compare heaven to an eternal sermon, thank God, or going to the library or something like that. He compares it to a party. I think our God is just great that he would do that. And so I think it's significant that Jesus chose a wedding feast as the occasion for the first miracle that he ever did. And in those days, wedding celebrations would last up to a week. The whole village would be invited, the whole extended family. And there'd be food and dancing and wine. Lots and lots of wine. And so in the story that we read today, when the host runs out of wine, it is a potential embarrassment. It's an embarrassment... But it's hardly an international crisis, right? I mean, in the scheme of things, this is relatively minor. And that's what I love about this story. Because it shows me that Jesus cares even about the little things in my life. Jesus' first miracle wasn't curing someone of some disease, or ending a drought, or bringing world peace. Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into a wine so that a host wouldn't have to be embarrassed. Does God care about the little things in our lives? The answer this story gives is yes. He cares very much. But that raises a big question, doesn't it? 
if Jesus cares enough about the little things to turn water into a wine, so, you know, to help a host out with his catering issues, well, then what about those big things that we pray about and never seem to get the answer we want? The cancer that goes uncured, the financial crisis, the prayers for our children that seem unanswered, not to mention wars and poverty and hunger and all kinds of stuff like that. What about those? If Jesus turns water into a wine so a host doesn't have to run to the quickie mart to get more supplies, then why doesn't he deal with those things? And that's where I think Mary's response in this story is very helpful to us. Mary says two things. She has two lines in this story. And the first thing she says is, Jesus, they're out of wine. Sort of a nagging mother comment maybe, you know, hint, hint, Jesus, they're out of wine. Do something, right? But I think it's interesting that Mary presents him with the problem, but she does not then tell him how to solve the problem. Let me ask you this. Is that how you pray? Is that how you pray? Because that's not always how I pray. You know, I don't often simply present God with the issue. I usually offer up a couple suggestions for how he ought to deal with the issue as well. You know, here's how you ought to do your your job, God, let me tell you, But one of the things I have been learning to do in the last few years is not to ask God for a solution, because who knows if I've got the right idea of what that should be or not, but simply to pray, Lord, here's the problem. Show me what you want to do with it. And there's a huge difference between praying that and praying, give me this or heal me that or do this thing for me. You see, if we pray for our preferred solution, we are taking the place of God. We're deciding what the best outcome is instead of letting God decide that. But if we simply pray, Lord, here's the problem. What do you want to do about it? We're letting God be God. We're letting him decide how to handle the problem. It's like the old joke. What's the difference between you and God? God never gets confused and thinks he's you. (laughs) Or me. When we face a problem, big or small, can we simply pray, Lord, here's the problem. What do you want to do with it? Show me. And then can we do the second thing that Mary says in this story? After she presents Jesus with the problem, he cryptically says to her, woman, my time has not yet come. Whatever that means. Right? I mean, who knows? And Mary, probably confused by the answer, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Maybe almost giving up, right? Oh, do whatever he tells you to do. What a great statement of faith. That, that, that Mary doesn't necessarily understand what Jesus is up to, but she trusts that whatever he decides will be the best. So she says, do whatever he tells you to do. Can we pray, Lord, here's the problem. What do you want to do with it? Show me. And then can we wait? A day, a month, years if necessary. Can we wait and listen and watch? to see what God does with the problem, and then do whatever he tells us to do. Obey his laws, follow his instructions, even if they don't make sense to us at the time, trusting that he knows best. It comes down to that one word, trust. Do we trust that Jesus knows better than we do what is best and what timing is best? Do we trust? Because if all we do is try to manipulate God to give us what we want, that is not a relationship, that's superstition. And God wants the relationship. He wants the daily conversation with us. But when we give our problems to Jesus and trust that he knows best, he takes our problems, whatever it is, whatever that problem is, and he brings something extraordinary out of it. 
It may not be what we expected. It may not even be what we wanted. But it will be exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or even imagine. I love the imagery in this story. Jesus takes water and he turns it into wine. He takes something that's ordinary and kind of boring to drink and turns it into something that has life and energy and joy. Wine tastes good. Wine can alter our mood. Wine is alive. It's fermenting. It's changing. It's growing. Jesus takes the ordinary, humdrum stuff of our lives and turns it into the extraordinary. I have a friend who goes to the exact same restaurants every week, even sits in the same booth, which sounds pretty routine. But he goes with Jesus on his mind, and that makes a difference. And over the years, he's gotten to know the entire staff of this restaurant, and he and his wife have had them over to their house for barbecue lots of different times. And one of the waiters in this restaurant is an ex-convict. And one day, the waiter started to tell my friend about how he had a lot of guilt from his crime. And my friend said, I know someone who can take care of that. His name is Jesus. Friend was able to lead that waiter to Christ. And I've been to that restaurant with my friend, and it's, it's like the old TV show Cheers. Whenever he walks in, everyone knows his name. Right? And not all of them are bringing pitchers of water to him, begging to be baptized. But, but he's made great friends with all of them, and they know what he's about. And he's even managed to change a few of their lives. Now, going to the same restaurant every single week can sound kind of humdrum. But if we do it with Jesus, it becomes an adventure. If we go into our offices and into our neighborhoods praying, Lord, I know you're up to something here. I know you have an agenda for this place. What is it? Help me see it so I can get on board with you on that. If we do that, it can be pretty exciting because Jesus turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. He turns water into wine. And the reason he does that, one of the reasons, is that he wants to give us joy. He wants us to have joy. And that's one of the reasons he does this miracle in this story. In Jesus' time, the rabbis had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. So in this story, when the wine ran out, Jesus makes more wine. Why? Because he wants to bring us joy. And he doesn't make just a little bit either, right? If you read the story, he makes 180 gallons of wine. Okay, that'll do her, don't you think? (laughs) That is exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or reasonably consume, right? And it wasn't some cheap box of wine stuff either. I mean, it was the best wine these people had ever tasted. And by the way, it was real wine with real alcohol. None of this nonsense you sometimes hear in church about how it was really grape juice. Oh, please. Right? I mean, the host even says this will make you drunk if you drink too much of it. Right? Now, Jesus is very clear we should not get drunk. And if we have an alcohol problem or we're around someone with an alcohol problem, we shouldn't drink. But as I've said many times before, Jesus ain't your Aunt Tilly either. Stamping out fun wherever he can find it. In fact, one of the other things that people did at weddings back then was they danced. Which raises an interesting question, don't you think? Did Jesus dance at this wedding? I mean, it kind of gives you a different picture of Jesus, right? To imagine him out on the dance floor, maybe doing one of these, right? Or (laughs) sprinkler, right? And I know that sounds like borderline blasphemous, but it should not. Jesus wants to give us joy, and not just a little bit, but 180 gallons worth of joy. And even when things are tough, even in the health crisis, even in the relationship problem, or whatever it is, Jesus always brings good out of even very painful things. And even in the worst forms of suffering, 
Jesus brings us his presence and his joy. And over the years, I have told you dozens of stories of people that, for, that, for whom that's been true in some of the worst circumstances if we simply present our problems to him. He does that in the big things, and he does that in the little things. He is Lord of both. I have a friend who's been to seminary. She has impeccable theology. She's very smart. And she was scheduled to speak at a church, but she was late, and there were no parking places. And she looked for a long time, and she couldn't find one, so finally she caved in. She did it. She prayed for a parking spot. She said, Lord, I know this is bad theology, but I need a parking place. And what do you know? Someone pulled out right in front of her, right? And all she could do was just laugh. Now, does that mean God's going to give us a parking spot every time we ask for one? Of course not. But if in that moment God thought it was in everyone's best interest to give my friend a parking spot, who are we to tell him that that was too small of a thing for him to do and that he really should have taken care of the problems in the Middle East first? Who are we to say that? Apparently God really wanted her to get to her speaking engagement to tell people about him. But he also might wanted to humble my friend a little bit with all her fancy pants theology and teach her something about himself. As if to say, you think that I'm above this. You think that it's bad theology to pray for a parking spot. Who are you to tell me what prayers I should answer and what prayers I shouldn't? I am the God who turned water into a wine just to keep a party going. So just to show you, here's your parking spot. Poof, take that. <laughs> I think it's probably what she needed, don't you? 1 Peter 5, 7 in the Bible says, Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I looked up the Greek word for all, and it's interesting. The Greek word for all means all. <laughs> I went to seminary three years to learn how to do that. I, I hope you're impressed. It doesn't say cast your important anxieties on him. It doesn't say cast some of them on him. It says cast all your anxieties on him. But it also doesn't say, cast your anxieties on him along with a three-page memo on how he ought to deal with them. It says, cast all your anxieties on him and let him decide what is best to do with them. Trusting that he cares for you and will do what is best. My last year doing college ministry, the Stanford powers that be denied us the use of a room on campus for our college group to meet in. And I prayed and prayed about this and tried every avenue I could with the Stanford bureaucrats, but none of it worked. The result was we did not have a consistent room to meet in. It, it kept changing, which meant students couldn't find us, which meant students stopped coming. And I'd worked for five years on this ministry, watched it grow from 20 students to about 200. But now, week by week, I had to watch it get smaller and smaller because the students couldn't find us. And it just felt like five years of hard work was just going down the drain. And I was frustrated that God didn't seem to be helping, and I was embarrassed and felt like a public failure because the group was shrinking. Well, in the middle of all this, I, I was meeting one day with one of my students, one of the few that remained, and he started to tell me a story about his recent vacation with his family. And they had gone on a Caribbean cruise together, which was nice for them. And his 13-year-old sister wanted to see a dolphin on this cruise. So every night the family would pray, Lord, Hillary wants to see a dolphin. They didn't say, show us a dolphin, just said, you know, here's the deal. She wants to see a dolphin. Well, the last day of the cruise came and they had not seen a dolphin. 
So the parents started to talk to their daughter about how, you know, God doesn't always give us what we want and he knows what's best and all that. But then on the last afternoon of the cruise, they were standing on the deck of the ship and what do you know? A dolphin shows up by the side of the ship. But didn't just show up, it started to do tricks. It jumped into the air, it did twists and twirls and flips. It did this for 30 minutes. They got the whole thing on videotape. Well, next day, when they pulled into port and they read the paper, they they found out that a dolphin had escaped from a nearby marine park. (laughs) Gone out to open seas. Apparently, that was their dolphin. Okay, so what are the chances that they would run into this particular trained dolphin out in open seas on the last day of their cruise when they'd been praying about this dolphin thing for a week? So the student tells me this story and concludes by saying something like, isn't God great? Well, all I could think was, so let me get this straight. (laughs) Poor little rich girl gets a dolphin on her Caribbean cruise, but I don't have a room for my ministry to meet in. What is up with that, right? But I couldn't say that because that's depressing when the pastor says that to a student. So, you know, I smiled and said, praise the Lord or something like that. And then when I got home, I started to pray, okay, Lord, I am doing this ministry for you. Uh-huh. And I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. And all I ask, oh, Lord, is a room to meet in. But no. I have to watch five years of hard work go down the drain while Hillary gets her dolphin. And I wrestled with God about this for days. And then one day I was praying about it and I heard God say, not in words, but in thoughts that were clearly not my thoughts, if I want to give a little girl a dolphin to bring her joy and build her faith in me, what's that to you, Scott? And if for reasons that you don't yet understand, you need to have no room to meet in, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I realized that in the scheme of things, neither the room issue nor the dolphin were earth-shaking things. One was important to me, the other important to a 13-year-old girl. And I had to admit that my fears about the ministry weren't just about wanting to serve God. That was part of it, but I was also worried about my reputation. And if God was doing something in me by not giving us a room, if he was teaching me to love him more than my reputation and, 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 and trust him even when things were hard, well, then couldn't I accept that from his hands as well? Trusting that he cared as much for me as he cares for that 13-year-old girl, even though she was the more mature of the two of us. When we went for the next 10 weeks with no consistent room, and the ministry dropped from 200 students to about 70, but by the end I was at peace, because I'd come to trust that it was God's ministry, not mine, And the 70 students that were there were were living for Jesus in some radical way, so who cares if there were only 70? They were great students. Besides, Jesus only had 12, right? And one of them didn't turn out so well. But most importantly, it was out of that experience that I learned to pray, not, Lord, give us a room, but I learned to pray, Lord, what are you doing here? Just show me so I can get on board with it. And that is a huge shift and an important shift. To go from telling God how to answer my prayers to trusting him that his answer is best. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, not me. And that has given me such peace 
to have learned that over the years because I don't have to wrestle with God to get him to do what I think is best, and I probably don't know what's best. And that was a very important spiritual discipline for a future senior pastor to have developed a year before he came to Bellevue. In the words of Garth Garth Brooks, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. And then, the next quarter, we got a room, and just when I was comfortable with only 70 students, we ended the year with more people than we'd ever had before, as if God was saying, and I can do this too. You just try to box me in with your theology, Dudley, and I'll break out of it every time. There's a great old hymn that says, Leave it there. Leave it there. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. So this week, will you cast your anxieties on him, all of your anxieties, without direction for how they should be dealt with, but simply saying, Lord, here's the issue. What do you want to do with it? Show me. And then wait and give it time and listen and watch. And see him do something you may not expect, something you may not even want at first, but that will be water into wine, ordinary into extraordinary, exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or even imagine, 180 gallons worth of joy because he cares for you. Not just some of you, not just what you think is important. He cares for all of you. Lord Jesus, in the words of the old hymn, we pray that you would help us to trust and obey you, and we'll be grateful people. We pray this in your name. Amen.